Hello, and welcome to Partners in Diplomacy, a podcast series exploring the service, sacrifice, and adventure of life as a Foreign Service family member. I'm your host, Bonnie Miller, and we're joined by Carl Derringer, a Foreign Service spouse who has used his skills, talents, and creativity to make an important impact on a village in Rwanda and on other places during their postings over the past 15 years. Welcome, Carl, and thank you for sharing your experiences with us today. Well, thank you very much for having me here. I much appreciate it. So let's start with your early years. You were born in Saskatchewan, Canada in 1964. What was it like growing up in your family and community? Well, it was a small city of 160,000 people, uh, and it was uh, just a very typical kind of lifestyle for that part of the world. I you know, played football and hockey and all sorts of fun things like that. I think the difference for this audience to think about is that I had seven older brothers and sisters who all had a passion for travel. And because of that, I, I also developed a, a passion for travel. And we had a, a little globe in the bathroom where I grew up and I would spin this globe around and I knew all the countries in grade two. So I always had this passion for travel even, even before I, I left home for the first time. That's very interesting. So how did you decide to enter the medical profession as a nurse and what kind of education did you have? Coming out of high school, I decided that I wanted to work overseas. And of course, uh, out of high school, you there's no place for you to do it without an education. So I went on an exchange program to India uh, called Canada World Youth, which is an absolutely wonderful program. And I spent uh, three and a half months in Canada on this program and, and then three and a half months in India. And during the Canadian portion of the program, I got to work at a psychiatric hospital, and I just found it to be absolutely fantastic, uh, interesting, and working with people who were having mental health issues, and I, I thought that would be a rewarding profession. So I decided at that point uh, that I was going to get into nursing. Of course, we would have asked a you know, typical 17-year-old guy if he was going to get into nursing. I, I certainly wouldn't have thought that, but... By the time I turned 19, that, that's uh, right, the direction I decided to go. Because of that, I started going back to school uh, for nursing. The first program I went to was called a, a Registered Psychiatric Nursing Program. So I became a, a psychiatric nurse. That's only a program that's available in Western Canada. I did that for two years, and then I worked as a psych nurse for one year, and then I decided to go back and get my RN. The main reason being that I couldn't travel overseas with, with, with the registered psych program. There just was nowhere for me to function in that role. So I got my RN, and then I decided to start traveling, and I got myself a job in Jamaica. So what, what kind of work did you do in Jamaica? Well, Jamaica was an interesting experience for, in a lot of different ways. I mean, the first thing is this is back uh, way before the Internet, and to find it, I... I, I went to the, the university library and I found in the back of a nursing dictionary all the nursing associations across the world and I called up the Jamaican Nursing Association and they gave me three phone numbers for three different hospitals and I called up the three different hospitals and one of them answered the phone and I was able to, <laughs> I was able to get a job there. The job itself was really quite interesting. It was working in the university hospital on their psychiatric unit. So it was quite different from, from what I was used to. 
but the psych psychiatrists there were very, very, very good. But counseling, there was not very much counseling going on. So I really got to do um, use the skill sets that I've been trained with while I was there and felt that I made a difference uh, with some of my patients. I quite enjoyed my time there. Although um, it was a paid assignment and I wasn't making much money, it worked out to be between a dollar fifty and with inflation about seventy five cents an hour by the time I left, my income was going down and down and down to the point uh, I was uh, basically kind of ran out of money uh, for living the lifestyle I wanted when I was in Jamaica. So I worked my way to the United States. I cycled through Central America first and got myself to the United States on two thousand dollars of debt. I was on credit cards, kind of getting maxed out, and uh, found myself a job, a nursing job, in a psychiatric unit in in Miami at that point. Okay, so your your interest in foreign cultures started when you were quite young. So how and when did you meet your wife, Anne Casper? Well, my wife was visiting mutual friends down in Florida, and she was kind of looking for, for someone and a date, and they set her up on a blind date with me. Our mutual friends knew my history and knew that I'd been all over the world, and, and they figured that we would be a good match. And uh, we met at the bar, and... Uh, Gave her a little hand massage right off the bat, and that seemed to work really well with her. So, and the two of us hit it off quite quickly. I mean, our first date I think lasted 23 hours. We just talked and talked and talked and talked. And I showed her my pictures from around the world and all the things that I did. And you know, we only spent 23 days together before we actually I proposed to her. And I think you know, sometimes when you're with a foreign service officer, you got to move quick because you know they're just also they're just going to be out of your radar screen. So we got together pretty quick, and uh, yeah, so that's how we met. So you both said, this is the person for me, and you both shared the love of travel. And so when you married Anne in, in 2004, she'd already been in the Foreign Service for 11 years, and so that seemed to be the right lifestyle for you, right? Yeah, I, it was sort of funny because I had actually thought I was finished traveling. I had probably spent about three years with a backpack on traveling around the world through Southeast Asia. I've been to Europe, Central America, and I, I really wasn't looking to, to travel anymore. But the right person came along and you know, there I go again. So you know, it was okay. I, the fact that she was traveling around the world or going to be living overseas wasn't a detriment to our relationship. So were you required by the State Department to get American citizenship and how did that work? And uh, are you a dual citizen now? Well, I am a dual citizen, and it's actually a good question for your for your audience because you don't need to be an American to marry a foreign service officer. But the State Department did help me advance my citizenship to make it happen a little faster. They did that through the Flow Office, and that was very very useful. We got married first before before I became an American citizen, and then we moved to Thailand. So I'm probably the only American that ever had to learn Thai. Uh, to become an American citizen. So we actually had to fly back for my swearing in. So your, your first posting with Anne was in Bangkok. She was the embassy public affairs counselor, uh, and that was 2005 to 2009. But as of typical Foreign Service spouse, there was no job laid out for you ahead of time. Right. So what was life like for you in Bangkok and as part of a large regional embassy, and did you work there? Yeah. The first day that uh, Anne goes to work, and I made her a coffee and I brought her out the newspaper and then she got up and she went to work and then I'm sitting there going, hey, 
wait a minute, <laughs> this wasn't part of the plan, you know. <laughs> so you know, so you, then you have to start getting creative, and then you got to start making things happen. Unfortunately, the first thing that happened is applied for the jobs at the embassy, and as a nurse, I applied for the nursing job, and unfortunately, I didn't get the first one. Basically, I realized there was somebody else who had been a nurse in the foreign service who got that job, but she should have got that job. So then I'm out of my profession and I had to figure out, well, what am I going to do now? So first thing I did is I started taking university courses. The nice thing about going to Bangkok is you could actually take university courses there. So I was able to do that. It was a fantastic experience, actually. Then I, I, I did eventually get a job there as a clo. And that was a, a great experience for me. It was really quite fun to uh, you know, basically run the parties, greet people, and uh, you know, it was a very social type of job, a little less stressful than psychiatric nursing. So I, I quite enjoyed that. So that was the first job that I had in the foreign service. And you learn a lot as a CLO, and especially for you, this being your first embassy and Bangkok being a gigantic one, a regional embassy. But you were persistent. Yeah. You said, can't be the nurse. I'll try for something else. And it worked out for you. Right, right. And there's always opportunities, especially in the big embassies. I mean, there's, there's a lot of opportunities. If you look for them and you find them and, and you're persistent and you were. So fast forwarding, in 2009, you had a life-changing move to Africa, where Anne was DCM, Deputy Chief of Mission, in Kigali, Rwanda, which, as we know, was not so, so long after their tragedies there, and perhaps your first time in Africa. So 10 days after your arrival, you visited a small, impoverished village of Batwa people who were socially marginalized tribe. So please tell us how that experience resulted in your weekly visits to that village over three years you were there, and how you initiated numerous projects to improve their lives through music, income generation, and increased food security, and also how you funded those projects. So... It started off with the first time we went to the village. We really wanted my wife there because she was the acting uh, charge or the charge at that point in time. And the three of us with a small NGO went up to the village. We were giving a tour of the village and seeing what was going on. And because my wife was a charge, she had the, the ambassador's vehicle, which was a very large Yukon. And we we get to the village and we were meeting the local people at a very, very, very poor village. We're talking, many of the people were just living in, basically they would bend branches over into forming some kind of a tent and then they would take plastic and put it over top of that. Some of them had like a corrugated steel rusted door, some didn't. It was, it was a very, very poor village. And a little bit off to the side, this is an area that they were separated from the rest of the, of the people in the area. So we heard that there was one woman in the village that was having a baby and it wasn't going well. And she had been in labor for over 10 hours. And it was at this bottom of this very steep, long hill. And we walked down to see her and the, the person from the NGO that I was with, he went in and checked her and she just was not progressing in her labor. She was going to die at the bottom of that hill if we didn't do anything. This you know, small person, so I, I was able to pick her up and I started carrying her up the hill. 
And then the villagers all came and they helped me and we got her to the top of the hill and we put her in the back of this Yukon truck along with her mother and along with her husband and we rushed her off to this hospital. And uh, she needed surgery. She had to have a, a cesarean section. And she survived and the baby survived. And I got to go back to the village a couple of weeks after that. And the whole village sang for me to thank me for what I had done. And it just melted my heart. And from that moment on, I decided, well, this village is where I'm going to spend my time and I'm going to try to help these people make a better life for themselves. So that's where it started. And I had already developed some, I was lucky enough that I'd already started developing good uh, Rwandan friends already. And I talked to my friends about, you know, well, what can we do for them? And one of the first things we started coming up with this this ethnic group is known for their singing and dancing. So um, I bought them uniforms and then uh, so that they could present. So we got them all dressed up and then I, I needed to find a place for them to uh, perform. And the first thing that I did is I, I set up at the embassy a, uh, a Christmas fair. And I brought in all these uh, small NGOs that were trying to raise money. So it was NGOs that were mothers without, without husbands or just small NGOs that, that were trying to sell their wear. And, you know, there's a very large expat community in Rwanda. So I was able to contact all those people. And we had maybe a thousand people come to this event. And we had over 23 vendors, all NGOs. And we used our group as the entertainment. And we asked for donations for them. You can't actually charge for an event at a, a U.S. embassy, but you can ask for donations. So we asked for donations uh, for our group, and we were able to raise over $600 the first, the first time around. Uh, and then uh, we went back to the village and said, well, what would you like to spend this money on? And it took a couple of weeks to think about it. And they said goats, so, which was actually a great thing because there was only three goats in the village before that. So in the end, we were able to buy over 50 goats for them. And then we taught them animal husbandry. We uh, bring in some of my Rwandan friends uh, and taught them how to raise the animals properly and what to do when they got sick. And so that, that worked out. It worked out really well. That first program really well. And then we would find different places for them to sing in the country in different events and I did the same if for the three years that I was there I did the same fair year after year and we raised more money the second year 1100 the second year and then the third year um, we actually said we're gonna give this money to other people but you're gonna get paid a salary for working on there you know I was a psych nurse so one of my things was really developing their sense of self um, unfortunately they were the most marginalized group in a, in a poor country it was very difficult for them they were discriminated against a lot by, by the locals, and they felt that. They felt that that was part of them in a lot of ways. So part of that was developing their own self-esteem, and then also communicating with the locals uh, that were not part of this group, and helping them understand, well, well why do they act the way they do? What, what draws them to, what, to do what they're doing? So, for example, they were often said, well, if you give a batwa uh, a metal roof, they'll sell the metal roof. And it's like, well, if you're hungry, and that's the only thing of value that you got, of course you're going to sell the metal roof. So one of the things I was able to do was to get on television 
and with me, she's a previous social affairs minister, and the two of us got on television, and we talked about this. And that program actually got replayed many, many times on uh, Rwanda television. So that was one part of it. The other part was, what else can we do for these people? Well, we wanted to help them grow food. And they had land, but they didn't have the money to, to prepare the land and to have the seeds to put into that land. So one of the programs we ran was through a small grant that I was able to get, we paid them to work on their own land at a local wage. Instead of working for somebody else, they were working for themselves. But they had to put the labor in. And so we built terraces on the land. And then we brought somebody in to teach them how to plant the crops properly. And then we brought people in how to manage the crops and the pests that came along with them. So it was always an education and finding different things. We, we also got the UN involved. But the nice thing about working at the embassy is that we got to meet a lot of very special people. So we'd use our contacts and get them up there. So we were able to get uh, the UN to come up and teach them basket weaving. And that, that program worked out really, really well. There's still a lot of basket weaving going on and they're still selling those products. So that worked out really, really well. Yeah, so through your efforts, you really uh, helped create uh, self-sustaining programs for this community and for them to feel important and for them to support themselves. So it was a huge deal. And for your efforts, you won the AAFSW SOSA Award and were recognized for that. A place where you saw a need and you said, hey, I can figure this out. I can help them to fill the need and I can bring in a network of people who could help them as well. So that's great. Well, you asked in the one part was, you know, how do we fund this? And uh, so I used a lot of different funding sources. One was my family, calling up my family and saying, hey, this is what I'm doing. Can you help me out with this? And uh, so my sister would have a jar at work and she would shake down everybody for change and so on. And my mother, you couldn't leave my mother's house with change in your pants if you showed up uh, there. So, you know, we, we, we got a little, and I also went to small grants. I, I, I would encourage people, if they decided to do something like this, to look in State Magazine, look in the Foreign Service Journal, look online. Uh, and I was able to find these small grants that were very, very useful um, in accomplishing the goals that we wanted in that village. You got a State Department Kirby Simon Foundation Award, and those are not easy to get, but they obviously thought that your program was definitely worth it. Okay, so then you move on from 2012 to 14, Anne was posted as the Consul General of the U.S. Consulate in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, and you went and lived with her. So what was life like for you, and what were your activities there? I think the first thing to talk about that is, you know, in the Foreign Service, you, know, you can have these dramatic changes in life over a very, very short period of time. And so we went... I had the probably the biggest culture shock of all the travels I've done across the world. The biggest culture shock I had was going from Rwanda to Saudi Arabia. The reason for that was because I was going trying to help people from basically starving to death on the side of a hill to um, you know our contacts were now some of the richest people on earth, going from mansion to mansion to mansion um, and incredible amounts of food. Arabs, when you get to know them um, and they like you, um, they treat you like family and they're very, very, very generous people. 
Um, but it was hard to go from this uh, very, very poor community to a very, very rich community. And that took me, took me a real adjustment to be able to do that. So that's the one thing, to be aware of those cultural, those big, you know, culture shocks that you can have between assignments. I was able to get a job right away at the consulate there, and it was a very, very rewarding job. I, I quite enjoyed it. We did a weight loss group, and that was very, very successful. The work was very, was very satisfying. And once, once I get over my culture shock, uh, I felt very fortunate to, to get to know a lot of the, the Arab people there. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention, again, is for our audience, is when you get out, just try to get involved as much as possible with the community. You know, it's easy to fall into just spending your time with other Americans or other diplomats. But find, try as hard as you can to get yourself into that community and get to know the culture that you're in. Uh, one easy thing that I always did all the way through was to, to join some kind of a, a running group. And uh, it's a group called the Hash Hound Harriers, which is a, uh, often called a, uh, a drinking group with a running problem. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a, but they're a fun, fun group and very mixed of locals and, and foreigners. And, and very social. It's a really good way to get to know people. Uh, so we had one in uh, Saudi Arabia as well, but walking in the desert wasn't quite as much fun as walking in the tropics. Uh, but uh, again, it was just a good way to meet people. A very important one. So another change for you. In 2016, Anne was appointed ambassador to Burundi. So can you please describe the situation that you encountered when you moved to Bujumbura and the changes that you witnessed in Burundi during that three-year period that you were there? The thing about Burundians, and I would also say Rwandans, is that outside of the political violence, it's, these are very safe countries in, in a lot of ways. You know, When I spent my, my three years in, in Rwanda uh, or Burundi, I spent a lot of time running and walking in the countryside and poorest of neighborhoods and I never felt unsafe and I never was unsafe you know um, really didn't hear about any real violence going on especially the foreigners but not not a lot of problems to be worried about with what was going on there I think as far as as you know thinking of, as a spouse of an ambassador the biggest the biggest thing for me was that um, it was harder for me to find a peer group. And talk about me being a male spouse of a, and a male spouse of an ambassador, which is rare. And so I didn't have a, a natural peer group. I don't think the, the French ambassador really wanted me hanging out with his wife when, they were, when he was at work. So it took a little more work for me to uh, be, develop a social network uh, in that country. And there were some restrictions. but. One of the things that I did is I joined a running group there, and I was the only foreigner in the running group. We had a we would go out and we'd sing as we would as we would run, and we would run off up at the hills. And the first couple of weeks, I couldn't keep up with these guys, and eventually, before I left, I could I could keep up with them. Uh, but again, that was a great way to get to know people. It's just get out there and push and push and push until I got to uh, I got into these groups. Um, I also got to work at the embassy again. And that was a, a wonderful experience. You know, this is now the, the third time that I've worked at the embassy as an RN. And so I got to know the job pretty good at that point. Um, but again, 
you know, it's it's you know when you when as your spouse goes up the the chain of command, it, sometimes it can be a little bit harder to to make things work. So you have to work at it harder yourself to to get those invites or to make store make things happen. One of the things I want to happen doing is one of my one of my passions, one of my things in life is I love to dance. Um, I'm a swing dancer. I started teaching swing dance at, at, at my at the ambassador's residence once a week, and uh, I invited locals and I invited uh, other people from the from the diplomatic community, and uh, it wound up being uh, a wonderful experience and kept me busy, kept me involved. So you used your skills in creativity, and uh, that that was a way that you developed a social life for yourself, especially as a male ambassador spouse. Maybe you were a curiosity, you were in the spotlight, so you kind of had to carve out a role for yourself. So then Anne was posted to Iraq uh, for an unaccompanied tour of eight months after you left Burundi. And so how was that separation for you as a couple? And what were you doing then? I went on vacation. <laughs> I, the lucky part was I have seven brothers and sisters. And so I used that opportunity to go back to Canada to start visiting with all of them. And then I had mentioned I'd gone on this exchange program when I was 19 years old to Canada World Youth. Actually, we had a reunion. Many, I, was, I went on that exchange program in 1983, 84. We're still very close. So I got to go on a reunion in Alberta, Canada, and I got to meet my old friends. And I went for a dance camp because, of course, I love dancing. And then, of course, COVID hit. And so I wound up was visiting my niece in, of all places, Nashville. And uh, it wound up, I had to stay there. It was, I got myself a rental, I got myself a roommate, and I stayed there until Anne came back. She came back after eight months and joined me in Nashville. You know, I was lucky enough. I mean, I have family and friends, and, and I, I enjoyed myself while I was gone. Um, I also, I think one of the things that people are always concerned about when you're you're going overseas, well, how are you going to contribute as a spouse? What are you going to do to make money as a spouse? So, I mean, the nice thing is that you can work online now. And so one of the things that I had done basically from the age of 14 is I also invested in the stock market. Over the years of being overseas, uh, I got more and more involved in that. Eventually, being a nurse, I, I understood what was going to happen when the virus struck uh, China. So, so many opportunities now to work online. So you've already given us some words of wisdom and advice. Do you have any final thoughts for spouses whose partners are considering a career in the Foreign Service or who are marrying somebody who is already in the Foreign Service? What would be realistic expectations of a career in the Foreign Service for a spouse? Well, I guess the first thing to think about is to be grateful for it because you're going to give so many opportunities across the world, meet so many people, see so many things. And the Foreign Service, the State Department takes really good care of you. You don't have to worry about your housing. You don't have to worry about housing repairs. You don't. They pay for plane fares to go home, visit your relatives. So, so many of the things that you would normally have to worry about, you don't. So you can spend your time focusing on the things that you want to spend your time focusing on. It's a privilege. Is it, is, it a, is it a challenge sometimes with your career? Absolutely. Flexibility is really, really important. You have to be flexible. Things change. Your hobbies change from country to country. It's like, okay, well, what is my hobby going to be here? 
what am I going to do here for exercise? Each country presents its own challenges and its own benefits. So be flexible, be grateful, you'll find your way. It's, it's worth it. And it sounds like in each posting, you found a way to keep physically healthy, mentally healthy, and socially. And it was different in each of your postings. And that, I think, is due to your flexibility and adaptability. So, Carl, on behalf of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your experiences. You are a shining example of someone who has adapted his skills for the time and place you are living in. As a nurse, humanitarian and community organizer in Africa, massage therapist, embassy community liaison officer, dance instructor, and stock trader. Thank you for listening. If you are curious to learn more about the lives of Foreign Service family members, subscribe and listen to additional episodes in our Partners in Diplomacy series. To learn more about the experiences of America's diplomats and diplomacy, visit our website at ADST.org or check us out on Twitter and Facebook. The Partners in Diplomacy podcast is funded by the Una Chapman Cox Foundation. Our theme music is We Are One by Scott Holmes. Our assistant producer is Sumaya Ishrat. Our producers are James Fowler and Mark Rincon. Our audio engineering and post-production are provided by James Fowler and Post Productions. My name is Bonnie Miller. Until next time.